Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity we have to be together and to fellowship as the body of Christ. Lord, you've commanded us to gather together so that we can encourage one another and stir one another up to love and good deeds so that we can be a part of a family. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that our family gathering would be a blessing to us. Pray that the teaching of your word, the preaching of your word would convict us and inspire us and bring about repentance and change in our lives where it's needed. And we also pray for our sister Beth, Lord, who has struggled for 12 years with a physical ailment. And I pray, Lord, that as she travels to Columbia, that you will give her safe travels, that you will protect her as she goes for this PET scan. And I pray, Lord, that you'll give the doctors in Columbia the ability to properly interpret the scan and they can pinpoint what's going on so that she can get treatment and relief from this affliction. And Lord, as we are continuing to try and grow in Christ's likeness, I pray that you will help us set aside all the distractions of life. Lord, there are many. Our lives don't stop because we're coming to church. The, the worries and the stress and the various things intrude upon our worship. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the clarity of mind and the self-control and discipline of mind to lay aside everything, to push aside everything so that we would be focused on Christ and Him only. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If I could encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles. As I mentioned before, I am continuing our study in the book of Hebrews. And this morning, as we continue, we're in Hebrews chapter 13, and we are on the home stretch of the book of Hebrews. There's 25 verses in chapter 13, and I think we will finish over the next couple of months. I'm not exactly sure when, based on schedule, but there's a lot of important material here, and so I want to go through and give it the time it needs, but also I'm looking forward to finally coming to the end of what has seemed at times to me like an odyssey or quest to actually get through the entirety of this book. But as we find ourselves in chapter 13, I'll give you a little bit of a background just to make sure that we are on the same page as we begin to look at our text this morning. We are in a portion of scripture at the beginning of chapter 13 that really is focused on Christian living. In the book of Hebrews, it is heavy with doctrine. Doctrine was necessary because there were people who were tempted from their Jewish perspective, and this was primarily written to Jewish Christians, it were people who were tempted to lose sight of the importance of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Some of them were being drawn back perhaps to the sacrifices in the temple. I believe the book was written in the temple and Jerusalem was still standing, and there was a strong cultural and familial appeal to the rituals of Judaism, but a lot of theology is poured out in the book of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that no one would be confused about what it is that gives you right standing with God. It's not the blood of bulls and goats, it's only the blood of Jesus Christ that creates the opportunity for the relationship of salvation with the Lord. So within the context of the book, it is heavy, heavy, heavy with some great doctrine. But then towards the end of the book, the focus becomes for us, how do we live out this doctrine? The exhortation isn't just to learn more things, but it's to live a certain way, which is a biblical, Christ-centered way. 
I've said more than once, all the doctrine of the first many chapters really is summarized. The purpose of all that doctrine is summarized at the beginning of chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The information that we are covering now really is showing us how to live this out. How to lay aside every encumbrance. How to lay aside the sin which trips us up. How do we focus on Jesus? And so the practical instruction in chapters 12 and 13 is really focused on living this out. And at the end of chapter 12, it provides a transitional thought. It's not a new thought. It's just a crystallization of the types of things that have been taught throughout the book. And at the end of chapter 12, the focus is on heaven, remembering that we have a heavenly ultimate destination, not an earthly destination. But because we have a future time with the Lord, because we have a future appointment with God, because one day we'll be with Him for all eternity, we're supposed to live here with great gratitude and appreciation. At the end of chapter 12 it says this, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, that that really is the foundation for everything. If you know Christ, you're a part of that kingdom. We receive that. That's not taken away from you. If that, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That really is the beginning of chapter 13, is how do we live a life of reverence and awe? How do we live a life of service? How do we live a life of grateful service, of thankful service to the Lord in light of everything we've learned? As Christians, we should have constant gratitude... Because God has given us a gift beyond comprehension that won't be taken away from us. He doesn't give it and take it away. He gives us salvation. It's a permanent possession. And because of that, it should affect how we live. And so, I'm not going to reteach the first three verses, but I'm going to read the first three verses because this is the beginning of this explanation of a life of grateful service. Beginning at verse 1, it says, Let love of the brethren continue. Verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Verse 3, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are in the body. Primarily in these verses, it's talking about an obligation we have to other Christians, but certainly it extends outside of that when it talks about strangers. But really, and I want to stress this, what this is saying is that if we love Christ as we've been loved, we're going to actively show that to other people. It's not going to be a secret faith that we just sit in a corner and we enjoy on our own. If we truly know Christ, the responsibility we have with all the doctrine that we learn is to go and show the love of Christ to others. To love other Christians. To be hospitable to strangers. To remember Christians who are persecuted or hurting and reach out to them. The ways to live out these exhortations are endless. But the idea is we need to be others focused. 
We need to get our eyes outside of the mirror that just reflects back our own issues and concerns and problems such that we're captivated with ourselves. And we need to see what's going on around us and open our hearts to others so that we can meet their needs and interact with them. But I want to focus on this idea of others focused. That's what we wanted to focus on, rather. But as we transition to verses 4, 5, and 6, it might look like there's a shift in ideas. But I'm going to tell you that really, while there might be a different emphasis, we'll be able to see that really this is all part of the same evolution of thought. Now, verses 1 to 3 focus primarily on conduct towards others, but there is a, an appropriate self-reflection required in verses 4, 5, and 6 because it gets into our heart issues. It can involve conduct towards others and certain aspects of it, but I read at the end of our teaching the last time I taught from Hebrews 13, I read a, a text from Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. You don't have to turn there, but just if you want to make a note, Philippians 2, 3 and 4, I'm going to read it to you. The Apostle Paul says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. I think that verse properly encapsulated the hard attitude that we have to have to live out the exhortations of Hebrews chapter 13 verses 1 through 3. And I'm going to submit to you that even though it will seem like we're talking about a different type of conduct in verses 4, 5, and 6, verses 4 has one focus, verses 5 and 6 have another, this verse from Philippians really still summarizes the same issue. The hard issue that we're dealing with is selfishness. I think selfishness can be one of the hindrances to doing what verses 1 through 3 say because we get so preoccupied with ourselves that we don't look to love others. I've got my own issues. I don't have time to deal with your issues. That type of selfishness really gets to the heart, I think, of the exhortations we're going to see over the next couple of weeks in verses 4, 5, and 6. So as I think through our material this morning and next week... The warning bell to me is selfishness. That's sort of the buzzword. Again, we're supposed to be living lives of thankful service to God because of that eternal inheritance we have. A hindrance to that is going to be selfishness. And I think selfishness can be at the root of the problems addressed in verses 4 and 5. Not exclusively, but I think if we're looking through these verses, 4, 5, and 6, we can do a self-examination and we may find that there is selfishness in our own lives that's going to hinder our walk with the Lord. So, I have a simple outline. It's not deep or profound. But I'm going to break this material over the next couple of weeks into two parts. Two warning signs of selfishness in the life of a believer. It's two warning signs of selfishness in the life of a believer. And it's this. I'm going to read both of them to you, even though I'm only going to get to one today. The first warning sign is that you do not respect the marriage relationship. The second warning sign is that you're consumed with worry about money. So I'm going to be talking over the next couple of weeks about marriage and about money. Pray for me. Because I can offend everyone. It's not my intention. But this is hard teaching. 
This is teaching that cuts all of us close to the bone. So I'm going to read verses 4, 5, and 6, but primarily today we're going to be focusing on verse 4. So follow along with me as I continue reading in Hebrews 13 as I read verses 4, 5, and 6. It says this, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Verse 6, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? These verses, I'm sure, are familiar to you if you've been in the faith for very long. I can assure you quite often they're quoted, sometimes quoted poorly and out of context. But there's a familiarity in our ears when we hear these types of truths. And when I introduced the study of the book of Hebrews years and years ago, back in I think 2008, I pointed out the fact that one of the things that is a danger with Hebrews is we know a lot of verses here and there. We don't always have a context for the teaching. We remember them. I can tell you as I was reading one of those verses, an Iwana song was playing through my mind that Rachel and Heather used to listen to with Debbie because I just in my head, I start singing it. And that's a good thing. We want those types of memories to be there. But we want to have a context to understand how this comes to be in the Scripture. That's why I gave a little bit more background to remind you that this comes after chapters and chapters of doctrine that's directed towards the end that we would walk in obedience and that we would focus on Jesus regardless of all the things going on around us. So verse 4 begins, and I say it's the first warning sign of selfishness in the life of a believer. It can be the first warning sign and it's this, you do not respect the marriage relationship. You do not respect the marriage relationship. Let me read again verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. As I begin to talk through this verse today, I want to emphasize something very carefully. This has a lot of application to you if you're married. The convictions that came to me as I'm studying and thinking through this text all are in relation to my wife and our relationship. But this is not teaching that's exclusively for married couples. Because if you're single, you can defile marriage. If you're single, this has applicability to you. This applies to all of us. And the first part of that is profound. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. That means every single Christian should have an attitude of honor towards the God-ordained institution of marriage. Every Christian must have a proper view of the marriage relationship. It's interesting because I suspect that some years ago I wouldn't have even had to have asserted something like that. Every Christian would have assumed that they already understood it. 
But we live in a time of rapidly evolving social ideals in our country, social principles that have turned on its head the very notion of marriage. For Christians, however, we have to understand that a proper view of marriage begins with the recognition that marriage is not a man-made institution. It is not a social construct. It is not just a byproduct of living in an orderly society that has laws and regulations and so marriage falls out of that. No, marriage came from God. You don't have to turn there. I wouldn't commend you to go, I'm going to read a couple of verses. I'm going to read Genesis 2.18. I'm going to read Genesis 2.23 and 24. But God set up the pattern for human existence. And before the fall, God said this. Verse 18 of Genesis 2. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And we understand God made a woman as that suitable helper. God was the one who created two different sexes. God made male. God made female. And after God miraculously created Eve, we see this in verses 23 and 24 of Genesis 2. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. I do a lot of premarital counseling and I stress to people, this is God's standard for marriage before the fall. What's interesting, however, is that's God's standard for marriage after the fall as well. For example, in Mark 10, verses 6 to 9, Jesus says this, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Verse 9, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage is supposed to be held in honor by all. Every Christian should hold the institution of marriage in honor. And it begins with recognizing the institution as God intended it. Now, it's no secret. We live in a society that completely rejects this notion. Because of the recent Supreme Court ruling over the last year, every state in America has to recognize by law a different definition of marriage. America as a legal society, as a legal entity, now has to accept that a man and a man or a woman and a woman can be called married. And I'm convinced in my lifetime, plural marriage, multiple spouses, is going to be legalized as well. The legal principles that allow same-sex marriage apply perfectly to having three or four husbands or three or four wives. But that can never change the standard for a true Christian. Now, to this point, you may say to yourself, well, Joe, you're preaching to the choir, and we already understand this, but this has more applicability to us than you think, because it transcends gay marriage. I'm trying to get us back to our core to understand the unchanging bedrock principles that God has laid out that should govern the institution of marriage. We cannot honor this institution if we don't think rightly about it. And I fear that we've grown lazy in our thinking. Not necessarily here at Lakeside, but in the broader Christian environment of America, even amongst Bible-believing churches, the ground is shifting. Now, by God's grace, you've got the elders you have at Lakeside, I can assure you that as long as 
the elders that are in place now stay in place, there'll never be a same-sex wedding at Lakeside. We will only at this church recognize marriage as God intended, one man, one woman, united for life. And I really believe that churches that waffle and hem and haw on this issue dishonor God. They certainly dishonor marriage as God intended. And a generation of young people quite often has been raised in churches and because they're not taught the sufficiency of Scripture and the unchangeableness of God, they think, well, these things can change. We'll just adapt, we'll change. And they're being raised to think that this evolution of marriage, these changing ideas of marriage is no big deal. But I want us to think correctly about marriage so that we can be those who honor marriage, who have the right view of marriage, And I want to submit to you, I don't believe that the damage done to marriage began with the Supreme Court ruling legalizing gay marriage. That ruling was sad and a travesty, and as a former lawyer, I don't think it was required by the Constitution, but I also understand the Supreme Court does what the Supreme Court does. They have the final say. I care much more about presidential elections, not because of all the laws and all the promises. I care because they appoint the Supreme Court justices, and that dictates our lives. But that's a side road I'm not going down. (laughs) Can I say that it's very sad for me to reflect upon and think, but I think Christians have led the way in dishonoring marriage for decades, or at least people who identify themselves as Christians. For decades. Now, do you really mean that, Joe? Are you just trying to use her hyperbole? No. I really mean this. It's not a hyperbolic statement. And I think the dishonoring of marriage began because Christians grew comfortable with the idea that God's standards weren't really what God said they were. I want to read another similar teaching from Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. Matthew 19, verses 6 to 9. This is Jesus' teaching. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And if you understood from studying it, Moses didn't command divorce. Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. I really believe this from a human perspective. Easy, rampant divorce paved the way for gay marriage. I think the church lost its voice and ability to have credibility in this issue because the church grew very tolerant of people treating marriage in a dishonoring way. Just getting divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried and nobody wants to step on anybody's toes. It's interesting. Christians acted outraged about gay marriage. And yet we've been silent about the epidemic of divorce amongst Christians that has gone unnoticed for decades. Such that divorce among Christians does not even get noticed by most churches. Even though Jesus specifically made it clear with the exception of one 
type of sin. Divorce is always sin. Christians have grown comfortable with it. The Bible makes it clear Christians can initiate divorce proceeding against another Christian only for one ground. And yet within our churches, this has been thrown aside. The Apostle Paul didn't contradict Jesus when he gave an additional grounds for divorce. The Apostle Paul, however, was dealing with a situation where a believer was married to an unbeliever. And he said in 1 Corinthians 7.15, If the unbeliever leaves, meaning if the unbeliever divorces you, don't fight it, don't be contentious, we're supposed to live in peace. If the unbeliever leaves you, let him leave. So if you read the scriptures, the grounds for divorce are very, very narrow. If you join the church since I've been here, I teach this part of our new members class. More than one person has not joined the church because of what I teach. And it's not my teaching, it's just what our church believes and what the scriptures say. But we have this command in verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Every believer should hold marriage in honor. And yet this has been ignored in the church for years. There are Christians get divorced because they're not happy. I don't literally scream, but I want to scream when I hear somebody say to me when counseling, well, I just know God wants me to be happy. That's one of the saddest, most heartbreaking things I've ever heard because I understand what's at the root of it. That's selfishness. I want to be happy. Or I've fallen out of love. Or they love someone else, they think. Or they feel they're not being properly respected. Or they're not being treated nicely. And on and on, people mount justification upon justification. And yet we have this simple, unchanging truth of Scripture. God has a different standard for His people. The idea of church discipline is very rare, but since I've been here, on the few sad occasions we've had to take church discipline about somebody, it was almost always because they were dishonoring their marriage. And we take it seriously, not because we are superior. We all have our shortcomings. All your elders except one are married. And we all struggle to fulfill what God's called us to do. So don't hear anything I'm saying as though I'm on a pedestal saying I've got it everything down. But we have to recognize that when God spoke on the issue of marriage, He did not stutter. He did not stumble. He spoke very clearly and very directly about what marriage is, about what our responsibilities are. And if we don't think rightly about that, if we don't try and submit our lives to the standards of God Himself, we will never hold marriage in honor. I'm just speaking to a small group of us. One of the ways we honor marriage is to eliminate divorce amongst us. Don't get divorced. If you're married, stay married. If you're single and looking for a spouse, get married and stay married. I think divorce amongst Christians has done more damage to the testimony of the church than gay marriage ever will. Because gay marriage is on the outside of the church by and large. Divorce is inside. If you want to hold marriage in honor, then you've got to have proper biblical roles. Husbands need to lead their families in a loving 
and gracious and humble way. And wives need to submit to their husbands in a loving and gracious way, understanding that they're not really submitting to a man, they're submitting to the Lord. Do we fall short? Of course we do. If we didn't fall short, there wouldn't be a cross, there wouldn't be a need for grace. I know, coming in, we have a lot of people at Lakeside who have been divorced. I know we have a lot of people who aren't acting godly in their marriages. Can I submit to you that one of the foundational ways that every one of us can comply with the command of Hebrews 13.4 that marriage is to be a hold in honor among all is to recognize and confess sin for what it is? Acknowledge sin. Turn from it. Don't wallow in it. If you got a divorce that was sinful, acknowledge it was sin and repent. Don't try and justify it after the fact. God is a forgiving God, but there's no point in pretending that sin isn't sin. And if your marriage is not good right now, don't pretend that it's okay that you have a bad marriage. You need a good marriage. You need to repent and change. And when I say that, I'm not telling you to go home and tell your spouse, see, he said you need to change. (laughs) I'm telling you to look in the mirror for your part to play. Because if your spouse never changes, you can live godly. If your spouse never changes, you can obey the Scriptures. So don't go past that idea too quickly. Quite often, the wrong views we have about marriage are really tired up in our selfishness. We don't want God's standard. I've seen more theology change because of what people's adult children did than anything else I can imagine. Well, my kid did it. I don't want to call it sin, so maybe God didn't really mean it. On and on it goes. We are masters of justification. And we have an adversary in the devil who's a liar and the father of lies and he wants us to believe the lies. We've got to come back to God's word and camp out there. My point's not to make you feel horrible if you've sinned in the past. What I want you to do is be honest about what it was. And acknowledge it. And if it's something you haven't repented of, repent. And particularly if you're married now. If you're not treating one another in a godly way, you need to repent of it. There are many people here that will be happy to come and provide counseling to you. We have counselors who would love to meet with you as a husband and wife and help you become what God wants. If you're thinking about getting married, come for premarital counseling well in advance. We do a lot of premarital counseling before we will marry someone because we want them to understand God's principles. We want them to hold marriage in honor as is required by Scripture. So that's the general framework. You can examine your thinking right now on marriage and see where you are. And then we go from a general conceptual framework that should apply to the overarching aspect of marriage and we get into a specific way that you can dishonor marriage. Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. The marriage bed is a specific application of the requirement to honor marriage. Supposed to be undefiled. And the idea here, the marriage bed, is a specific reference to the sexual relationship in marriage. Scripture doesn't beat around the bush. That's what it's talking to. 
That was phraseology that was common at the time that symbolizes the sexual relationship of a husband and wife. And according to the scriptures, it dishonors marriage and it insults God if anyone defiles the sexual relationship of a marriage. So what defiles the sexual relationship? This shouldn't be hard for us because we live in a very defiled culture. You turn on TV and I could show you examples of defilement everywhere. But defilement primarily occurs in the context of this scripture through inappropriate sexual relations. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment. I'm going to talk about inappropriate sexual relations because the scriptures defines that in two ways. But there's something implicit in this verse that I want to emphasize. And it's this, that God intended there to be a sexual relationship in marriage. Christians must believe and accept that sexual relations in marriage are good and proper and necessary. Now, there's a historical context at the time of the writing of this scripture, but it's something that predates the time of the writing of this scripture, and it certainly has occurred many times since then. And occasionally there's an idea that pops up that somehow comes to the conclusion that sex, that the sexual act between a man and a woman is somehow inherently defiling. That sexual relations in and of themselves are worldly and wicked and evil and they should be downplayed and minimized. There were some people that would even wrongly teach that sexual relations were beneath the dignity of truly godly people. In times past, you could find historical records of people who would castrate themselves because they thought it was more spiritual not to have any sexual relations. But as Christians, we cannot let society's defilement of sexual relationship or even our own sinful past defilements of sexual activity make us look at sexual relationships in a wrong way. Satan would love for us to go to various extremes, either to be completely libertarian, we do whatever we feel like, which would be sin, or to go to the other extreme and just not have any sexual relations. But it was God that created man and woman. Our bodies are not like they are anatomically because of evolution. They're like they are because this is how God chose to create us. And God was the one who made sex not only our means of procreation. It is that. It's how we populate the planet. But God is the one who designed our bodies such that a sexual relationship is both enjoyable, it's pleasurable. And scripture makes it clear if you're married, you're supposed to be having regular sexual relations with your spouse. From a time perspective, I'm already going too long. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 5, you can read through that on your own. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 5. And the Apostle Paul acknowledges that if God has given you the ability to stay single and you're not married and, and you won't struggle with sexual temptation in that context, then that's good. You can be devoted to ministry. You can do more things. But if you have a strong sexual drive, their only outlet for that sexual drive is in the context of a godly marriage. And within marriage, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that, look, we don't have control over our own bodies. He's not sanctioning anything without consent. What he's saying, though is that our duty is to fulfill one another sexually if we're married. 
He even phrased it in verse 5 of that 1 Corinthians text of stop depriving one another. He's talking about sexual relations. So understand this. If you are married, sexual relations are supposed to be a part of marriage. They're not demeaning. They're not bad. Of course, there are times where for medical reasons, people cannot have a sexual relationship. God is not condemning that. The Apostle Paul is not addressing that. But if there's not a physical reason why you can't be together, then as a husband and wife, you should not abandon God's plan for marriage, which includes a sexual relationship. If you still have young children, you should be teaching them that sex is a good thing. Even as you teach them about sexual sin and what not to do, they should always understand that sex is a gift from God. Our society makes sex a demeaning and dirty thing by the advertisement of sinful manifestations of sexual activity, but we as a church need to recapture a sexual ideal that gives thanks to God for the way He made us. So the proper exercise of sexual relations in a marriage is good. That's not spelled out with a specific word, but that's the implicit assumption based on what occurs next. By him saying the marriage bed is to be undefiled, he's saying there's supposed to be a marriage bed. In other words, there's supposed to be a sexual relationship. But if that sexual relationship is defiled, it is sin, period. Defilement is the opposite of purity. What defiles the sexual relationship? The verse gives the answer. Any sexual activity other than that engaged in between a husband and a wife defiles the gift of sex. Verse 4 says, The marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Fornicators and adulterers. This really encapsulates the entirety of sexual defilement. These terms are used throughout Scripture. In one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. This isn't new teaching. This is old teaching. And it's a command that's still enforced today. What's adultery? It's any sexual activity between a married person and any person who's not their spouse. If you're married, you can't have any sexual relations with anyone other than your spouse, period. That should not be a revelation. And if you're single, obviously you can't have a sexual relationship with anyone, and certainly not with a married person. Fornication is just any sexual relationship outside of marriage by someone who's not married. Any sexual activity outside of marriage between two people who aren't married would be fornication. I can already tell I'm running out of time, and I may come back and address some more of this next week. But this is where I want to really get into all of our lives. And this is where selfishness jumps off the page. According to Jesus himself, adultery goes far beyond just the physical act of actually doing something with someone else. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28 says this, and I don't think it's the first time you've heard it. 
These are Jesus' words. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Jesus just hearkening back to the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think this is one of the most damning verses in the Bible. And I mean that in a biblical sense, not in a profane sense. What it makes clear is that all of this centers on our heart attitudes, our minds and our imaginations. And if you allow your imagination to run wild and you imagine yourself in a sexual relationship or act with anyone other than your spouse, it is sin. I heard a message in seminary and I was good friends with a gentleman from South Africa. We carpooled together for almost four years in seminary. And one day after chapel, the particular speaker who was one of the administrators and one of the professors at the school was really stressing how adultery disqualifies people from ministry. I think we would all agree that. A pastor who cheats with another woman on his wife, they can't be a pastor anymore. But as we, as seminary students, were want to do, we stood outside and said, well, wait a minute, what about what Jesus said? And I remember what my friend from South Africa said, because as we were talking, the discussion was, well, if that's adultery, just thinking about it, then what? And my friend from South Africa said, and I can't imitate his accent, but he had an accent, he said, then I think everyone here has to withdraw from seminary. Here's the point. We struggle. Men, I only can relate to you because I'm a man. We struggle. But understand that the defilement of marriage is not prevented just by not acting out with someone else. If you foster a fantasy life that's imagining and thinking of things, it defiles marriage. I know, however, that this isn't just a struggle for men. I know women can get into this mindset also. And it because we all have sinful, fleshly hearts, that even though we've been born again, we still struggle with the flesh. And if we're not careful, man or woman, we can wind up compromising in that area. Certainly, we can't engage in sexual activity in a physical nature with anybody else. But we can't even go there in our minds. That's what makes pornography off limits for any Christian. Either alone or as a couple. Because it feeds the imagination and makes people imagine things with other people. And Jesus calls that adultery. I recognize we live in a promiscuous society and Satan will attack us relentlessly. But any type of fantasy life in your mind with someone other than your spouse is sin. It's adultery. You have to put it away. And that happens as a single person. Even if you're not married, if you are thinking sexually about other people, it's either fornication or adultery depending on who you're thinking about. I say this is hard because we all know our shortcomings. 
But there's a strong warning at the end of verse 4. Look again. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In that context, it's talking about the ultimate judgment. When people will pay the penalty for sin, when God's wrath will be poured out on sin, and when God pours out His holy wrath, it will be poured out on fornication and adultery amongst all the other sins. I can tell you this scripture presses down on me. It makes me uncomfortable. Because I know the struggle of my own heart. I know the challenge it is for me. And I know I'm not alone. So I want you to be honest with yourself. If this is an area of struggle, repent. Turn away from it. Ask God's help, forgiveness. And if you recognize you've sinned in this area and you have repented in your heart, let me offer you a little bit of hope. But it's not really a little bit. Everyone in here who's ever engaged in fornication or adultery, God's wrath is poured out on that. God's wrath is poured out on it. And that's when you say, thank you, Jesus. Because God's wrath, if you know Christ, is not going to be poured out on you despite your sin. It was poured out on the cross 2,000 years ago. That's what allows us to put one foot in front of the other and not be crushed by the weight of our sin. Because Christ died for those sins as well. So let me encourage you, don't trifle with this. Fight against it. Also recognize that if you're truly born again, there's now no condemnation for you. The judgment has already occurred. And by God's grace, you're forgiven. Let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for every one of us. pray that we would honor marriage, Lord, and that we would not defile marriage. And I pray that you would help every one of us to live in a way that brings you glory and honor. Lord, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, and most of us have fallen in this area because of the active imaginations of our mind, Lord. I thank you for the forgiveness we have at the cross. Lord, I pray that we would never use your forgiveness as a justification to keep sinning. But Lord, when we feel the guilt of our sin and the weight of our sin, I thank you that you would allow us to look to the cross and recognize that our debt is paid. We say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.